Good evening, everyone. I am that Williams guy back here for another episode. And a thought occurred to me. You know, I've been asking all of you to share the link with your smart friends, but not sharing with your dumb ones. Well, if none of your friends have shared the link to the show with you, you're their dumb friend. And I hate to be the one to break that to you, but that's that's just the way it is. So maybe you need to talk to your friends and, and, and come to a, a meeting of the minds on that. But joining us tonight, Tom Givens. How you doing, Tom? I'm great. How are you tonight? I am rolling. For those who aren't aware of you, and I don't know how they could be not aware of you and be <laughs> listening to this show, <laughs> who is Tom Givens? Uh, well, oh, that's a good question. I'm a, a full-time trainer, uh, started teaching part-time in 1975, long before you were born, and started teaching full-time in 1996, 25 years ago, so I'm, I'm thinking about making a career of it. Well, there you go. I was born in 75. I hadn't been around long, but I but I had been born there. All right. Well, I'm very familiar with the Range Master Doctrine. But I'm curious as the path you took to developing that doctrine, because I know it just didn't appear overnight. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a long story. Well, good. We've got plenty of internet. (laughs) Yeah. um, Grew up in in Memphis uh, on the last street before the city limits. And from the end of my street for several miles beyond that was undeveloped river bottom, just basically just woods, no, no homes in them, no, no paved roads, no anything for miles and miles and miles. So um, every summer, I pretty much just lived in the woods. And um, during hunting season, was out there the whole time. Uh, pretty, pretty much grew up as a woods rat, uh, which included guns, uh, plinking with 22s and hunting, hunting game with shotguns and whatnot. And I uh, spent a great deal of time doing that. So I I started shooting pretty pretty early. I think I got my first BB gun when I was like six, my, my 22 when I was about 12, and my first uh, pistol at 16. So started started shooting pretty early. Uh, Memphis back then, of course, we're talking about over 50 years ago, had a, um, te- a branch of the public library system called the, the Technical Library. And all it had were technical books, oddly enough. But they had an entire section on uh, firearms that included uh, General Hatcher's works, uh, textbooks of pistols and revolvers and Hatcher's notebook and, and all of his major books. Uh, had uh, Charles Askin's book from 1939 on the pistol shooting and uh, quite, quite a few others. Uh, Applegate's, let's see, Jordan's. They had pre- pretty much all the old heads from the, the 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, had their books there. So as a teenager, I started reading those. Of course, we're talking about in the 60s, so they're 40 years old uh, to 50 years old at that point. So I tried to self-teach myself to use a pistol based on material in those those old books that wasted, I don't know, a truckload, probably closer to a trainload of uh, ammunition trying to master these various techniques and uh, stumbled around. And then in the late 60s, I stumbled across Jeff Cooper's writings. I started trying to uh, follow his, his advice. Got my first 1911 when I was uh, 16 and uh, started uh, hand-loading for it so I could shoot it enough to gain any kind of skill with it. So by the time I 
was sworn in the Army in 1970. I, I had already been playing with 1911s for several years and uh, got some, quote, training, unquote, on, on the weapon and realized, uh, I know more about this than these people do. And then the same thing with police training. After that, uh, I, I was just appalled at uh, still being taught crap I've been reading about as a teenager from the 30s and 40s. And that that continued. So I, I finally just got disgusted. I said, well, if, if nobody else is going to do it, I'm, I'll just have to start teaching. So that's why I started teaching part-time in 75. This is kind of a sideline. Um, went through all the institutional schools, um, the NRA, law enforcement, fire instructor, tactical shooting instructor, been through the FBI school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But any meaningful training, I got it all. I got in the private sector on my own dime, my own time. And I, I just, I was appalled by that. So I, I started a quest, you might say, to try to find a system that does work and codify it and pass it on to other people. So that's, that's where the doctrine grew out of. I, I just saw such a need for training that wasn't just total nonsense, basically. Just unproductive. And, and you, you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. Just come, not, no effort made to make competent government out people. Let's just check the box, send them on, get the next get the next class in here so we check the box and send them on. And um, if you've been around for any length of time at all, it's just no surprise at all that people that whose only training is from those institutions don't do well in the field. I wouldn't expect them to. Before we go down the path of the, the training that you sought out, um, I want to kind of give an illustration to the audience of some historical context here. Uh, what people may not realize is that prior to 1968, you could mail order guns. And you've, you've told me a great story about that. I would, if you're willing, I would love for you to repeat that here. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. Well, let's just say it was a different world in the uh, Yeah. Uh, yeah. Folks, prior to 1968, you could order guns out of Sears catalog, JCPD catalog, and have it shipped right to you. Actually, uh, my first semi-automatic rifle was the Nylon 66 Remington from Sears. And uh, the U.S. postman came to the door, rang the doorbell, went open the door, he handed it to me, got back to the Jeep and drove off. Uh, of course, prior to 68. And uh, I thought, well, that's me. And uh, my, my first handgun was uh, was bought in person, but it, there was no paperwork or anything. It was just my father handed them some cash. They handed me the pistol to go out the door. Uh, today, it'd be considered a straw purchase, but it was before GCA 68. It was the way you got a gun in those days. Yep. And uh, quite had quite a few other little adventures like that with, uh, with firearms before the Gun Control Act. Yeah, I was already hanging around gun shops at that time. It was, it's amusing me to look back on it. Oh. Uh, Oh, southern planters and whatnot would come in the gun shop and say, you know, I'll take that one right there. So, well, here we need to fill out this government form. What? what? You, we, we need to fill out this government form. Blank you. I'm not filling out blank, blank government forms and turn around out the door they go. Uh, and now people who want to shop say, well, we got to fill out this form and do this and do that. And so, I mean, that's all I got to do. And then the other society's just changed a great deal over the last 50 years. Yeah. I grew up in a small farming community and I remember you go to the feed house and they sold ammunition sure. at the feed store. Oh, so when, I was, when I was a kid, every hardware store, um, 
where I bought most of my ammunition that I, I bought my, for myself was from a tire store that also had the FFL had had uh, ammunition and, and a few guns, mostly had ammunition. And uh, just to say how silly it is that after GCA 68, you had to actually show ID and, and they had to log into a logbook when you bought ammo, not just uh, as if you were buying a gun today, basically. Uh, that that was done away with in the 80s. But at that time, he had to do that. So my father went down there and gave the guy driver's license and everything one time. And then from then on, I'd just go in and buy the stuff. And they'd write down the same information <laughs> in the box. Silly, silly regulations require silly evasions. But uh, they just kept his information on file. And every time I went in and buy some 45 hardball from them, they just wrote the same information down the book and sent me out the door. He sent a 17-year-old kid out the door with it. Uh, Somebody finally realized that that had no effect whatsoever on anything, so creating a paperwork burden on people. Yeah, if I knew my father was going to the feed store on the way home to pick up stuff for the horses, I would beg him to bring me a box of Winchester Wildcat 22. And, uh, you know, so sometimes, like about every three or four times, he'd actually bring me a box that would last the next day. (laughs) And because I go outside and shoot it all up. And then there was a convenience store in town that sold ammunition so you could stop you know buy a few gallons of gas run inside get a coke and a box of 22s and, and head home yeah yeah when i was when i was a teenager box 20 a 50 round box of 20 long office was 29 cents yeah. and no of course 29 cents was harder to come by but i got a few yards to do whatever I've, I've done some kind of work from the age of 15 on and no make a little money go buy some ammo burn it up that's if, if I could have back the ammo I wasted and all that trial and error stuff in those days, I'd, I'd never have to buy another round of ammo the rest of my life. Yeah, I, I was prone to go out in the pasture, and if the horses weren't in the direct line of fire, I would shoot ant bets just because mm-hmm. I like watching the big cloud of red dust and mm-hmm. tell me how many boxes of 22 I went, went through doing that. Yeah. All right. Um, so what was firearms training like in the academy for you? Oh, it sucked. And of course, this this is in the days when we had revolvers, and uh, they had just started making the transition away from thumb cocking for everything. Uh, NRA police pistol competition, as we know it today, didn't start till 1960, so it, it was just getting firmly established by the time I came along. So they had just made the change over to uh, double action shooting as as the uh, norm, except at 50 yards, and. Uh, still loading out of dump pouches, which allowed you to dump your rounds on the ground efficiently. So then you could pick them up and get them into the gun somehow. Uh, time limits had to be glacial because of the equipment. If you're loading loose rounds from a dump pouch, you had to have lots of time to do it. So uh, if you, you look at the time limits from the courses of those days today and just think, oh, what any one-eyed three-fingered jackass could do that. Well, not necessarily when you're using a revolver and loose rounds that are all oriented the wrong way and trying to get them in the cylinder and still get your hits. So, um, no, no emphasis on uh, any of the tenets of marksmanship that we think of today. Really, it's just basically it's just you're jerking the trigger. Stop doing that, and uh, eventually you get to where you can shoot the double action revolver well enough to pass. I. I, I, I could tell, you know, early on that, you know, this, this is not adequate. What revolver did you carry through the Academy? Uh, Model 10 heavy barrel. That's not intended. Just like, just like everybody <laughs> else. Just like everybody else. 
There you go. All right. So you realize that this academy training is useless and you've got to go out and start searching for something else. Where did that path? Well, you know, like I said, I I discovered Cooper's writings after everybody else's. Uh, So I started corresponding with him. This back in the day when he wanted information. So like you said, I wrote him a nice formal letter and uh, Jeff answered every letter I ever sent him. uh, Starting, you know, I guess in my late teens. And uh, I'd ask him questions. He would give me detailed answers and and I'd go uh, try the stuff out. Uh, His early books, the 1960-something book that uh, Outdoor Life put out that has Jack O'Connor and a couple of other people, plus Jeff, uh, Jeff Hanlon, handgun section of it, was pretty much my guidebook, you might say, to get started at, at that time. And then by the late 70s, I actually managed to get the gun site and you know, get the training in person. Uh, but went through the 499, which was the highest class that they taught at the time in the 1980. So by that point, I was pretty well entrenched in what uh, what he called death on the modern technique. All right. Did Cooper himself teach that class? Yeah. yeah. Actually, when I went through the 499. Jeff was the lead instructor. Chuck Taylor was number two. Dennis Tudor was number three. And Barry Sabelsky from the Houston Police Department was, was number four. I had, I had the dream team. <laughs> had a lot of real high-speed guys in that class, uh, including uh, Jean-Pierre Denis, who wound up being the world president of Ipsy for uh, several years and uh, several other people. And uh, really, really a good, uh, very intense five days, five and a half days. Uh-huh. Um, where did you go after that? Well, after that, I tried to get around to uh, as many training opportunities as I could. I think the first time I, ta- I trained with uh, Farnham was 1977. So that's that's a good long ways back. Uh, he was, uh, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking John was the first of the itinerant traveling trainers. It actually wasn't Cooper was. Uh, Cooper taught in Latin America, uh, Europe, South Africa, Rhodesia, several other places uh, in the 60s, and uh, used some of that experience as a formation, uh, the foundation when he formed gun site in 75, and uh, first opened up, I think the first classes were actually in 76, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, so Farnham had taught, had uh, trained with Jeff at that point and, and decided to go on the road. Back then, Farnham worked for company called Doolatron and had some of the first electronically controlled targets that could pop up. They could even come up with the double-sided. You could make them come up as a foe this time and as a non-shoot the next time. And uh, pretty sophisticated stuff. But back in those days, of course, it was all hardwired. So it required a truck full of equipment and uh, a couple of days of setup. But uh, John traveled around uh, literally the world, not just the U.S., with that stuff, uh, conducting training. That's some of the first uh, training of that type, but I, I got landed, like I said, in the late 70s. Then started when I opened our, our own range in 96, when I decided to be a full-time trainer. And I started bringing it outside people about once a quarter. So over that 18-year period, I got to train with probably 40 different trainers, which is very nice. They will bring them into my range and actually observe what they do. Get a, get a really good feel for that. And, you know, I, for about uh, about six years, give or take, I was on the masthead of SWAT magazine, and my 
column every month, every issue, was to go to a school and write about for the magazine. And you know, that's a dream job for a trainer. I got to travel around and steal, uh, audit how other people do things and uh, work that into our programs. So uh, the, the things that we teach today are, are kind of an amalgamation going back to Cooper in the seventies up through all these other trainers that uh, seen over the years, probably, probably about 40 total. That we could take a little snippet from this, a little nugget from that and work it into our program. So it's a kind of a, when a student comes and takes a class with us, they're, they're kind of getting the, uh, the best bits from them and everybody in the business. I think I was the, <clears throat> I think I was like the second person to host Craig Douglas for an open enrollment class when he first started teaching outside police circles, for instance, and uh, quite quite a few other people over the years. So that that had a lot of influence on Dr. Whenever, whenever we bring in an outside trainer, I'd go take somebody else's class, which I still do now. Um, by this time, obviously, I'm not going to get a whole lot of new material, but I'm, I'm always looking for that one nugget in the class that I can take back and work into our program. Pretty much able to do that pretty much everywhere we go. Over the last two years, that we closed the range in 2014 and just took the whole show on the road full time. Since then, I've trained with uh, Gabe White a couple of times, uh, Ernest Langdon, uh, several other people that I've been able to go and take a class from. I try, but you, you know yourself how hard it is. I try to get a class or two every year from somebody outside my own organization, but uh, don't always make it. Uh, this year was tough because I lost a month and a half to the COVID early in the year. I had to I was in the hospital for six days, and then I uh, had to cancel two sold-out classes, which just killed me. Uh, not financially, just I hate doing it. And um, so I wasn't able to take any outside training this year, except when we got to the tactical conference. One of the nice things about running the tactical conference is uh, this year we've got, I think, 42 or three trainers. And I'll, I'll get around and get at least a little bit of every one of them during the course of that three days. I won't, I won't get to take a full class with uh, many of them, but I'll get to go around and sit in in their classroom area or go watch them on the range for a while. So I still get a pretty good feel for what's going on with uh, literally dozens of trainers every year since we do that event every year. I get to get to see pretty good, pretty good spectrum of skills, both, both firearm and uh, other skills as well. All right. Since, since we've mentioned the tactical conference, how did that come into being? Well, Part of my involvement with Cooper, you know, he was a real strong believer in, in competition, both as a means of developing skill, but also as a means of finding out what works and what doesn't. When they first started what later became IPSC, the International Practical Shooting Confederation, which in 1981, the U.S. part of that became USPSA. Before that, it was just IPSC. Unrestricted, meaning different kinds of guns compete against each other. Uh, they're not broken down into divisions or whatnot. Uh, Cooper felt that that was the best way to find out what is the best equipment, what works best, what technique works, what equipment works under not fighting conditions. Uh, nobody claims that. But the stress of peer pressure and performance anxiety and whatnot does give you a much better idea of how your techniques and your equipment hold up than, a, say, a practice session, for instance. So I was involved in setting up IPSC, which was formed, I think, in 77. And I was original section coordinator at the time. The 
Tennessee and Mississippi were combined into one section, which is the, how the USPSA broken down and kind of the whole country's broken down into sections. So I was the original section coordinator for that uh, area and I set up IPSC matches in Tennessee and in Mississippi and I shot at them pretty much, pretty much shot a match every weekend in one state or the other for a couple of years. And uh, we got uh, a lot of early progress made. Um, got, got a lot of really top shooters got started during that that time frame that went on to become well-known trainers. Um, Jerry Barnhart, John Shaw, for instance, those, those were guys that were in the very early days with me and went on to become real well-known uh, later on as competitors. Being uh, not a very bright learner, uh, very quick learner, I guess, in uh, uh, the 90s, uh, Bill Wilson and Ken Hackthorne and a few other people decided to try to go back to the original roots. Uh, IMSIC in 77, 78, 79, 1980 uh, didn't look anything like what it's evolved into now with a uh, uh, bigger emphasis on really high round count stages, a lot of movement, a lot of uh, athleticism. Uh, what uh, some of the old guys, uh, Bill Wilson, Ken Hackthorne, were the, right there at the very beginning, uh, as was I in, in IMSIC. So they wanted to start a, a, a different venue that would go back kind of to the roots of uh, a gun you might actually carry on the street rather than a hugely oversized match pistol with a, a huge optic on it, which, you know, optics in the 80s weren't like they are today. Had to be worn in a special rig that you, you couldn't wear anywhere but on a pistol range. So the guys wanted to start or restart, you might say, a little more relevant competition, which is where IDPA came from. So I was involved in setting that up. My IDPA number is A00008. So I'm the eighth person involved in it and uh, spent two years on the board of directors of that in its early formative days trying to get that off the ground. And uh, so we decided to have a winter championship match at my range in Memphis. Uh, since it was an indoor facility, they gave us an opportunity to have a, a major match that wouldn't be affected by the weather. For the most part, USPSA and IDPA both kind of shut down from usually around October, November until the next spring because on, uh, in much of the country on outdoor wages, it's just not feasible to run a pistol match uh, during the winter. So I said, well, I've got an indoor facility. I've got a fair bit of room here. We got um, more than one range. We got more than one classroom. We got um, uh, large restrooms. So we could, we could put on a fairly large event here. So the first time we did that, it was strictly just an IDPA winter championship. And the people came from literally all over the country to compete in it. And this is in its, you know, just like the second year of IDPA's existence. But uh, because of the constraints of an indoor range, we, we had to uh, have people kind of stand around waiting to shoot an awful lot. Uh, can only shoot a few people at a time. And, and sometimes we can only shoot one person at a time in the match. So after that first year, it dawned on me, you know, if you look around the people who are attending this, an awful lot of them are professional trainers. I got classroom areas. I got an area upstairs where we do hand-to-hand work and whatnot. We can also turn into a classroom. Um, why don't I force some of these people into putting on some, some seminar-like training so that the people waiting to shoot aren't just standing around waiting to shoot. They can actually get some value out of the time. And out of that simple idea, uh, evolved the tactical conference. Uh, after the first year, the, the, the training aspect of it was so much more important than the shooting match part that the emphasis kind of switched over to that. 
And uh, having been in the business as long as I have, I know everybody. Uh, so it's not that hard to come up with trainers that want to participate. And uh, so over the next few years, the emphasis shifted over from being a match with training on the side, being a training available to match on the side, which is what it is now, which is uh, to me a much, much smarter use of, of resources. Of course, it's grown to the point now we've, we've had to move it several times. A couple of times we did it at the uh, Memphis Police Academy, which is a huge, fairly new complex, one of the nicest police ranges in the Southeast. And that worked pretty well for us. Uh, we went out to uh, the United States Shooting Academy in Tulsa, uh, I think twice. Put, put them on out there. That was that worked out pretty well for us. Uh, tried tried various venues like that. Went to uh, uh, Direct Action Resource Center in, in uh, Arkansas, primarily a government type training center. But it worked out pretty well for us. But uh, last year and uh, again this year, we were at the Dallas Pistol Club in Dallas. That, that's worked out perfectly for us. That, that's a very large facility, about a dozen live fire ranges, multiple classrooms. Uh, of course, we bring in the, the tents for additional classroom work. But uh, Dallas is within about a four-hour flight that just about anywhere in the continental U.S. It's within driving distance of most of the population of the U.S. Uh, it's a really good range facility. I got an excellent staff that supports us. Uh, Ten minutes away is a a conference center, convention center, though plenty of hotels and restaurants and whatnot around. So it's, it's worked out perfectly for us. So, so now it's a major training event. We have, as I said, I think 42 trainers this year with uh, eight or nine tracks going on concurrently all over the place uh, in addition to the match, which to me is just a, a side event, really. Uh, you know, you can go shoot a match anytime, but not very often you're going to have over three dozen nationally known trainers in one spot willing to to teach you two and four hour blocks as part of your entry. It's the deal of the century as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, remember my very first TACCON, I went, you know, just as a pure student participant and I got assigned my shooting time and mm -hmm. I'm looking at the class schedules like, well, I guess I'm not shooting the match because I'm not giving up any one of these classes uh, yeah. to go shoot the match. And then the very first time that I presented at TACCON, I remember looking at the schedule going, if I wasn't teaching my block, there's nowhere in the world I would be in my block because I would be on any one of these other three classes. And so I think that's one of the challenges of going <laughs> sometimes is picking what you're going to take. Yeah, yeah. They, the only complaint I ever get is uh, I didn't get to do everything I wanted to do. Well, bingo. Yeah. It's you know, there's three days. Uh, I, I really can't ask these guys to work 24 hours a day. We, we, we generally run from eight in the morning to six in the evening. And um, you're not going to be able to do everything. It's just simply impossible. If, if, you, if we had a five or six or seven day event, you, you'd get to do most of what you want to do. But in three days, you just have to prioritize, try to get the things that are the most important to you. Uh, or you can do like I, I have to do, uh, which is you know, flip around and get, get 30 minutes of this guy and run over and get 30 minutes of that guy, which is not, for an attendee, is not what I would suggest. But you just have to prioritize your, your, your needs. If you're uh, deficient in your training in a subspecific area, then, then you pick out some blocks that enhance that. Uh, you can't do everything. It's not possible. Well, I, I try think, to do uh, I, I think... Uh, there's, I can't remember certain, there are 76 or 78 separate training blocks 
over that three-day period uh, to the one coming up this, this March. Tiffany and I are working on the schedule right now. And, uh, I, I believe it's either 76 or 78 separate blocks, two and four-hour blocks. So obviously you can't do 76 two-hour blocks or 76 four-hour blocks in three days. It's, it's not possible. But you can get uh, get a live fire block with somebody that you wanted to train with and the opportunity to go get some legal information from IUB or Branco, uh, which is something most people have to travel and pay a lot of money to get. Uh, go get some hand-to-hand work with uh, Cecil Birch or Larry Lindeman. Uh, go get some medical work from Dr. Sherman House or from Caleb Cosby. So if you prioritize and pick, well, this is important, I'm going to do this, and in that other field, I need that, and in this other, other discipline, I need that. Uh, that's how you maximize the, the benefit of being there. Plus, uh, people tell me all the time, the, the biggest benefit of attending is just networking with 300 other like-minded people that uh, don't automatically think you're crazy or weird for your because of your interests. Uh, you have 300 other people there share the same interests. So that's uh, it's a real good networking opportunity. People a lot of times find out about uh, somebody that lives in the same area as them that trains and does all the same things, but they've never heard of each other because, you know, like the, if you live in Houston, you're one of six million other people that live in Houston. So it's, uh, it's a good opportunity for people to meet other people and network. Yeah, to, to that point, I remember one of the years we were at the Memphis Police Academy and there was that big uh, central hallway that everybody kind of <laughs> gathered in between classes. Yeah, always mobbing there. I remember I had come out of one class, walked out in the hallway, and there was a gaggle of people standing there talking, and I kind of eased up to that circle, and it came time for the next class to start, and, uh, you know, students went off to the the various classrooms where that gaggle of people were all presenters who weren't presenting at that moment, and they were standing around having a conversation. I ended up just standing there for the next two hours Mm -hmm. listening to that just because it was as good as any class I could have gone to. Sure, sure. Yeah, if you think about the uh, trainer lineup, uh, there are literally thousands of years of experience there. Uh, I, I made a crack last year at the uh, trainer's dinner. And, you know, there's over 200 years experience here just at Farnham's table. Uh, but really, it, wasn't, it really wasn't, wasn't a joke. It, it had Farnham, uh, Masada, you, Marty Hayes, and Martin Topper. Martha, and, and I think one more is going to be mad at me for not remembering. Yeah. But uh, that's, a, that, that's a couple hundred years of, of operational and training experience sitting at that one table out of, what, 10 or 12 tables. Funny that you mentioned that because that was the first year that I presented. And so we come into the presenter's dinner and, you know, I'm the new guy. I didn't know exactly what to do. So I go over to this corner table where there's nobody sitting and I just go sit down over there thinking I won't be in the way. Well, in comes, you know, are you foreign on Martin Topper? Yeah. All these guys. And they come, can we sit here? Uh, 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 <laughs> sure. And they sit down and I'm looking around at this table and I get, you know, there's somebody that doesn't belong at this table and it's me. Hmm. And I remember sitting there thinking like, this must, what, you know, the closest comparison I could have made would have been like a second Lieutenant, in World War II that somehow wound up sitting at a table with Patton and Eisenhower and all mm-hmm. those guys. And I just kept telling myself, don't knock over your drink. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't do anything that reminds them that you're here. So they won't tell you to get up and leave. Just sit here and, and listen. Uh, I, I've been in that same boat back in uh, 78 or 79. I don't remember which. Uh, 
Jim Hagemob and I spent an entire evening in a um, booth in a bar, just four people, he and I, Jeff Cooper and Jim Cirillo. And uh, Jim and I kept remarkably quiet for several hours and just listened to Cirillo and Cooper. And uh, that, that was one of the most educational evenings I've ever, I, I would have paid a lot of money for that. It didn't cost me a thing with a couple of drinks, but uh, I would have paid a lot of money for that. And uh, I, I would love to be able to do that again. Uh, that, there were a couple of, you know, you're talking about a lot of experience. There's a great deal, both operational and training experience right there at that, at that table. Yeah. So magnify that by 40 something trainers at the uh, tactical conference and you get a pretty good idea what we're talking about. Well, Hearn and I had a similar experience having dinner with you and Spalding. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And Dave, Dave's my anorexic little brother. <laughs> that, that was a fun experience as well. Yeah. Uh, one last thing on the TACCON, I guess one suggestion that I would have for attendees is pick a theme mm-hmm. and try to get like every class that deals with that theme. Like my first year, uh, I was involved, I was at the, in the process of setting up a training program for an agency. And so I went to every block that had anything to do with setting up and establishing a training program. And then if there wasn't something in that theme during the time frame, then I would find something else of interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I came away with a lot of information on that. And it kind of helped me zero in and formulate on where I was going. Yeah. You know, a lot of people that um, show up in an event like that, they've already got a fair bit of gun training. Uh, they, they've been to several shooting schools. Uh, they go shoot on their own. Some of them, sometimes they compete, sometimes they go just practice. But they've actually gotten enough of that. But here's a, a rare opportunity for both both MassAU and, and uh, Bracker both are going to be uh, delivering uh, fairly large legal blocks. Uh, most of the guys that they've got plenty of firearms training are really weak in that, that area. Uh, you know, most people are just full of misinformation about what you can and cannot do with, with your firearm. So I would really uh, suggest take advantage of that. <clears throat> the other thing <clears throat> young people tend to be weak on is uh, the uh, immediate first aid for serious injury, traumatic injuries. You know, anytime, I'm frankly a little surprised that we, that it's not a more common problem with uh, people doing dynamic things on range with pistols, uh, a lot of, without a lot of prior training. And we don't have more medical emergencies on ranges than, than we do. You know, I've, I've personally taught almost 50,000 students over my career uh, without a single gunshot, but I have sent people to the hospital. Uh, had, had people stick knives through their hands, trying to open a carton of ammo. Uh, heat injuries are, are not terribly uncommon. Uh, you know, your typical student nowadays works in air-conditioned cubicles, sitting on his butt, pecking on a keyboard, and that used to be on your feet for eight, nine hours at a time out in heat and whatnot. So heat injuries are fairly common. And uh, people step in holes and turn ankles and whatnot. So the the actual incidence of gunshots during uh, gunshot wounds during class is not high, but it can be a really catastrophic injury. It's, it's kind of like why we wear a gun in the first place. You know, most days I'm not going to need my gun, but if I need them, I need it really, really, really bad. And the same way with that, that uh, trauma management, if you uh, have somebody shot, a lot of ranges are somewhat remote locations so that we can put a range there 
and uh, that that um, initial care that somebody gets can make the difference between crippling injury or being in the hospital in a couple of days or can even the difference between being dead and not being dead. And uh, here's an opportunity, you know, Dr. Sherman House, Caleb Cosby, both of them are going to be doing medical blocks geared toward the kind of injuries that you would find on range. And, and you find that it bleeds over in real life. I mean, uh, I know several people who have taken some of that type of training and then very shortly afterward uh, witnessed a, a horrific traffic crash and pulled somebody out of a car that would bleed to death had they not applied a tourniquet immediately. Well, they wouldn't have applied a tourniquet if A, they didn't have one with them and B, somebody hadn't taught them how to use it. So uh, to me, that's a really, if, if you're weak in that area, this is a perfect opportunity to get some exposure to that. Um, so between the legal aspects and the medical aspects, a lot of people could get all their benefit of, of get what they paid for just attending that and then take whatever time's left to go be shooting and like crap because like I said you shoot any weekend you want to right. but uh, this other stuff is, is hard to come by uh, it's, it's I think being smart about managing your time attack on is, is the best approach not just not just show up and go here and there uh, but find out what what am I deficient in what do I need to be shored up in and go work on that instead of just randomly wandering around um a lot of people who carry a gun don't have any empty hand skills. You need to have something in between a harsh word and a pistol. Uh, not, <laughs> not, not every problem you know, is going to require uh, shooting, but require may require more than just how hey, you stop that. Uh, being able to defend yourself without a firearm would be a pretty useful skill. We got people who are really good at it. We got world class competitors like Cecil and uh, Birch going to be teaching. Uh, and, and again, not in the sport jujitsu mode. Uh, simple moves that anybody can learn that can just keep you from being knocked out. For instance, as you know, Southar points out if, if the, in the opening gamut you're knocked out, your gun skills don't matter anymore. Your gun is not yours anymore. Block the guy that knocked you out. Uh, so uh, if you don't have a, a strong suit in that, that would be a good place to put some time in at the event. So. You, you got all of these different disparate trainers there with all these skills. And, uh, you know, one of the things we started, you know, decades ago was trying to look at this from a more integrated standpoint. You're not just have the gun guys over there and the hands-on guys over there and the medical guys over there, but bring them together and, and try to make a system that works. You know, the, the hand-to-hand stuff that somebody like Cecil Burcher or Larry Lindemann will teach you dovetails precisely with the shooting stuff that Tim Heron or Jed or Scott Jedlinski are going to teach you. Uh, it, it all has to gel together. And I think the trainers that we select for this do a just phenomenally good job of that. So again, you know, figure out what your beliefs masterful at, if you want to put it that way, and, and work on this and bring them up to speed. Yeah, I had a student at last year's conference come up to me at some point and goes, wow, what you just said mirrors just off of what, and I forget what other presenter has just said, and that, and he mirrored just off of what this other guy over here said, and I said, wow, it's like there was a plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Almost like it. Yeah. Um, so pretty careful about who we select. You know, every year I get tons of requests from people. Hey, can I, no. Uh, hey, can I teach next? No. Hey, can I present a block? No. Uh, you don't know enough yet. Uh, the, the people that do present are, for the most part, people with a great deal of operational experience, training experience, a great deal of training of their own, 
and taking years to figure this stuff out and now passing it on to other people. So you, you're going to find that people that are really competent in these disciplines are going to tend to be teaching stuff that dovetails together pretty well because we've all figured out what essentially what does and what doesn't work um, via the school of hard knocks. And uh, I think that's 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 an important component of having an integrated philosophy where, where you know, back in police training, it's common that the DT guys, the defensive tactic guys, teach a certain set of body mechanics. The shooting guys teach a completely different set, and they are antagonistic. You know, if you do what the DT guy says, you can't shoot. You do what the shooting guy says, you get your ass kicked. And uh, they, and they won't talk to each other. They're they're antagonistic. All oh, we don't talk to DT guys. You know, we're we're really gun people, and that's silly. Uh, so what we try to do is bring those guys together. Uh, I mentioned Cecil Birch several times because Cecil's a really good uh, trainer to teach people these basic, uh, both uh, striking and, and jits moves. Well, Cecil was just in the advanced instructor class uh, with me in uh, Arizona a few weeks ago, uh, continuing to work on his gun skills. So you can be sure that somebody's made his way up to advanced instructor and range master system and uh, like well, Pan Am's game competitor and BJJ is going to recognize that those two things have got to fit together and not uh, not teach you something that would be antagonistic to your pistol skills and vice versa. All right. Well, speaking of what works and what doesn't, um, I want to hit an instructor development and class design kind of vein here. You know, one, I think one of the hallmarks, perhaps the biggest hallmark of the range master doctrine is it's boiled down to the, you know, the core necessities of what a person needs to walk around in the world aren't. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of extraneous stuff. No, what, what I really would like to see is all of the effort, all of the bandwidth, all the time that people sink into things like shooting on the move and flashlight techniques and this and that. That's all precious time that could have been put into developing real skill at things that actually are going to come to play. Um, you know, flashlight skills for private citizens, totally, totally relevant. Uh, I've been doing this for a living now for over 50 years until about two years ago, I was able to say, say I've never found a single one. I finally found one incident where a private citizen actually used a flashlight in a defensive shooting, but it happened on a pig farm in the middle of no friggin' where with the nearest street light, probably 25 miles away. Most of us don't live on a pig farm in the middle of nowhere. And in a modern urban environment, there's enough light for you to see who dude is, what he's got to do in his hand, what he's dude doing. You know, uh, it's it's not that, it, you know, I'm sure you've seen it too, but I've, I've had my pistol out on 7-Eleven parking lot at three in the morning to see the sights better than I could at three in the afternoon on an overcast day. At the time of day is absolutely relevant. But in, in an urban environment, we're not in dark unless you go in the bank vault and close the door. Uh, bad guys can't operate it. Right? It's another common misconception that, that crime occurs in a, in a vacuum. What would a bad guy be doing in the dark? How the hell is he going to find a victim in the dark? Uh, what's the first step in selecting you as a victim? you got to see you. Then he's got to look at you. He's got to evaluate you. Do you have what I want? Can I get it away from you? And all of that requires visual input. He's not standing there in the dark feeling for a bad guy or for a victim like a catfish. He's looking at people, which means people can look at him. So the time and effort people put into that, I would much rather put into other things. Uh, there are things we know you're going to have to do. So that's the things that you should put the most effort on. For instance, I don't find nearly enough work 
on a good concealed carry presentation. I see people all the time show up for class, uh, not my classes because I don't allow it, but other people's classes with a battle belt, big open carry rig. And then of course, they take all of that off, put on IWB holster and a cover garment to go to town for dinner. So they've done all of their training from something they'll never have, which is a huge waste of time and resources. When we talk about training resources, you're talking about time, ammunition, and money. Nobody has enough of any of those. Nobody's got enough time, nobody's got enough money, nobody's got enough ammo. But what's the one thing that we got the, the, the biggest deficit on? Time. You can get enough money, you can get enough ammo, but you can't make more time. So we got to try to bring everything we can out of what time we do have available. So I would like to see a lot more emphasis on a consistent, reliable, fast, safe, efficient concealed carry presentation. Because if you have to use that gun away from your own house, which is the vast majority of the time, you may or may not have to actually fire it. You may or may not have to reload it. You may or may not have to fix a malfunction. But I guarantee you're going to have to get it out. So since we know you're going to have to get it out, I would like to see a lot more effort into that. Uh, you know, I get some idiot every now and then will tell me a oh, fast draw is not uh, a big factor in civilian shooting. So let's see. I got some dude car length away trying to kill me. Should I get it out sooner, slower, sooner, slower? Jeez, I just don't know. That That's silly. Oh, Every little piece of a second longer that it takes you to get the weapon out is time that you don't have to devote to making decisions you're going to have to live with the rest of your life and getting quality hits if that's the correct answer. So got to be able to get the gun out. We got to be able to get it out safely, quickly, and efficiently. Safely means without endangering yourself or accidentally shooting somebody else. Quickly, obviously, means a very short amount of time. Shorter, better. And efficiently means into a firing platform we can actually deliver a first round hit reliably from be confident that first round is going to be a good solid hit and that requires the kind of building the platform that we launch the bullet from so i'd like to see a lot more emphasis on that if you fire the gun you're going to fire it more than you think so i, I think conditioning people to go ahead and proactively reload is a good idea uh, don't get in the habit of firing some unknown number of rounds and then not being crazy about the fact that your gun's no longer full. You want a full gun. So we kind of program people that when the gun starts to get low, load it back up. Don't wait till it runs out. You don't wait till you run out of gas to look for a gas station. You proactively fill your tank up. We do the same thing with your pistol. If you shot it, it's got less ammo in it than it did have. And I'll almost guarantee you it's got less than you thought. You know, we do a little, little demo in every class where uh, I, I've never had anybody I'm not going to get into the details because I like people to get the full value of it in class, but nobody's ever beat it. And they're always shocked. And uh, it's uh, it just proves that, you know, you'll have less ammo than you think. So proactively reload it. Um, in a real fight, the gun may be jammed up against something. Somebody grabbing at it, pushed up against you. You may have a less than perfect grip on it. So malfunctions are actually a lot more common in fights than we'd like them to be. So I think quickly remediating malfunction without having to stop think about it. Just gun to do what you want to do, get it fixed, get back in the fray is important. So those are the kind of things we, we work on a lot. Uh, a good, efficient, fast, concealed care presentation, being able to get quick, multiple hits that are anatomically valuable in a very short time frame at typical engagement distances, which is about 90%. And that's not my numbers. That's, that's, shootings, uh, numbers from our students, shootings from the FBI's 
agent shootings and DEA agent shootings, which all three were plain civilian clothing and concealed pistols. About 90% of the crap happens between three and five yards. Uh, so think about it in, in our culture, and it's various from around the world, but in our culture, we talk to strangers about three steps, about three yards. And a typical American man's 16 feet long, that's five yards and one foot. So I just say a car length's about five yards. So if you look at it in that context, from talking to strangers at about three steps to the length of your car being about five steps, it's pretty obvious why 90% of this crap happens in that distance frame. So it's where we put the bulk of our work. Now, we do have to go beyond that some, but we don't spend a great deal of effort on that. Uh, the last five or six years, we've had three private citizen students, perfectly legitimate, necessary shootings, no legal issues, no nothing. One had to engage at 15, one at 17, and one at 22 yards. And they all pulled it off. Uh, you know, I, I have people tell me, I'll tell all private citizens, there'll be just fine shooting somebody beyond the car. Like, no bullshit. All three of these were absolutely necessary. In fact, uh, all three of them saved the life of uh, another person, not the shooter, but another person. So uh, I think that's an important skill. So we put some effort into that. Uh, we shoot with two hands as a default. If you got both hands, you put them on the gun, but we don't always have two hands. So we, we work on being able to shoot with one hand adequately well. And that's about, in, in an in entry-level class like a bad pistol, that's about it. Um, draw the gun quickly, safely, efficiently. Um, also, something I really, really find addressing glass. If you got it out, at some point, you got to put it back away. So we had to learn how to do that in you know, such a manner that if we're highly adrenalized, scared witness, we've just been involved in the shooting for the first time, we still can put the gun away without shooting ourselves. It seems to me getting through the gunfight and then shooting ourselves is somewhat counterproductive. So we work on that a good deal. Being able to shoot with whichever hand you have, with both if we got both, but with whichever if we've only got one. Being able to reload if the gun runs low and being able to remediate malfunctions if the gun gags. And the rest of the time is spent on things more involved with how to think. You know, we try to we try to remold the students thought patterns a good bit about this, you know, because they come to class with a lifetime of cultural indoctrination as victims. We have to try to change that. In fact, I had a had a psychologist go through several classes with me a few years ago. About the third one, he came to me and said, I figured out why your students are so successful in fights. I said, well, pray tell. He said, because you give them permission to defend themselves. So all of their life, they've been told, don't fight back, don't resist, don't do this, don't do that, call somebody else, they'll come make the bad man go away, which is not physically possible. I said, you've First time in their life, you've had them understand that they have a right not to be killed, not to be crippled, not to be raped, but that it's their job to make that happen. And that's why they're able to do well. And, and I agree with you. So we spend a fair bit of time in an entry-level class going over, uh, developing the correct mindset, uh, understanding what the actual threat level is, what your actual odds are. They're not one million by a long stretch. And uh, trying to develop that willingness uh, we, we think of it as a reluctant willingness. No, we don't want to shoot anybody. No, I'm not going to let you kill me. I'm not going to let you cripple me. I'm not going to let you rape my child. I'm not going to let you do any of those. I'm not going to let you kill me for my car keys. I'm not going to let you kill my wife for her purse. I'm simply not going to allow that. You know, something I learned a long time ago as an investigator, you can't have violent crime without victims, without people willing to put up with it. Uh, when somebody comes to you and says, you know, I'd like to unlawfully take your life, you have to be willing to say No. Nobody else is going to do that. You know, what, what's the average response time for a 
priority one call around the country now. You, somebody's life's in immediate, they got shots being fired, rape in progress, robbery in progress. What, what's the average response time for that kind of call now? I think about 11 minutes. Uh, that That's an older number. The, the current one's more like closer to 17. Yeah. Yeah. No, but take the little one, 11 minutes. Yeah. What in the hell? I don't care how highly trained, highly motivated, go-getter, best kind of cops you could possibly have. I don't care how many of those you got. There's no way in hell he can get in the time machine, go back 10 and a half minutes and fix your problem. It's just, it's not physically possible. People tend to think that if they punch three buttons on their cell phone, A, it freezes the action, and B, it makes somebody teleport down out of the mothership next to them to deal with the problem. That's simply not physically possible. No. You know, our friend Daryl Bokey says, you know, you're, you're your first responder. The cops are distant second responders. You're, you're your own first responder. Well, the truth is, you're the only one that's going to be there when you should. It's a fan. Yep. I had a discussion with someone in a, back when I was a graduate student that uh, just didn't quite understand the, the equations involved with the whole situation. And we were on the fourth floor of a four-story building. And I said, okay, here's the, here is the scenario. There is a very highly trained cop in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. The shooting starts now, active killer walking through these classrooms, killing students. How many people can that guy kill before that cop gets up four flights of stairs? And he's in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're waiting, waiting for you. Right. Now, if you add that he's got to drive all the way across town to get to that parking lot. Yeah, remember, you've got to get the call first. That's got to percolate through the call right. system first before it even gets to him. Then he's got to drive through traffic where he is to where you are. Right. That's why it takes 11, 12, 13 minutes. All right, so you've got to be able to deal with that situation now, not 11 minutes from now, now. Right. Yeah, no, nobody's going to be kicking your front door for 11 minutes. All right. Um, I, I want to circle back to the concealed presentation for just a second. Um because I know since, all right, I had fun on the internet making fun of the subsecond draw thing. And, you know, you, you made the statement that you did about every, every incident of time. Um, I've seen like you teach a two-handed garment clearance technique for a strong side IWB, you know, mm-hmm. clearance of the technique presentation. All right. Well, I've also heard the argument that well, if you clear with the support hand only, you know, you're saving a, a fraction of a second and getting uh, that strong hand grip on the gun. That is correct, but I also see that get flubbed more often than I see the two-handed presentation. So, is there a is there room in that math to go for the more sure technique than the quote fastest on the timer? Yeah, yeah. That in in competition shooting. Tiny, 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 tiny increments of time make a big difference because they add up. They, they accumulate into a significant amount of time. In, in a typical uh, fight scenario, you look at one stage, not 12, 13, 14 stages. I would much rather have a presentation stroke that's a tenth of a second longer that works every time than one that's a tenth of a second faster, but I screw up every fifth time because I guarantee you when the fifth time is going to be. You know, I just, I've done four in practice and now Leon wants me to do a fifth one on the Walmart parking lot. And that'll be the one I fuck up. So uh, I'm much more interested in bulletproof techniques. Uh, I 
very rarely see anybody really get fouled up using the technique we use. And, and if I do, it's somebody that would be fouled up no matter what we taught them. <laughs> uh, but I see people screw up a one-handed one pretty often. You wind up with the garment covering the last inch of the butt of the pistol and that sort of thing. And, and uh, uh, if you grab garment and gun both, that's that's usually, it's fixable, but it's it, it takes a lot longer than it would have simply been to do a, a two-hand presentation. Um, and of course, I said, well, you know, sometimes you won't have both. Right. And and the technique we teach will work with one hand. It's just, it just works better with both. Um, I've heard you make the statement before that all this stuff is cyclical and that every 15 years we see things come around again and people act like it's new and it's been invented. And you, you've been through what? two, three cycles of this? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm coming up on the end of the third cycle now. now if you're talking to any of the old heads, uh, Wayne Dobbs, Darrell Lowe's, the same thing. We just see the same crap arguments come up over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again. You know, the point shooting versus aim fire and revolver versus auto and nine millimeters versus 45. Those were all controversies invented by magazine, gun magazine uh, editors, not writers. Back when... Uh, Print magazines were still a viable means. When, when I was a kid, you know, the internet didn't exist yet. If you wanted information about guns, you went and got a gun magazine. There were, oh man, there were there were seven or eight major publications back in those days. There was Guns Magazine, Shooting Time, Shooting Illustrated, American Handgunner, uh, Guns Magazine, uh, Peterson Handguns, uh, and just on and on. I, I just named off, I think, seven. Uh, they were pretty much the major players. And they all had the same problem. They had to come up with enough content to fill a magazine every month. So the, the editors came up with that crap and crap. I was actually, I stood there, I used to, I started writing Combat Handguns magazine back in the 70s. And I've written about 150, a little over that, a little over 150 published articles over the years. So just about all the major magazines. But um, I was present when one of the, ed- an editor from one of the magazines, so I won't say which one, one of the writers asked him a question uh, about an article. He said, the what? Oh, article. Oh, oh, you mean the crap between the ads. <laughs> and, and which is the way editors look at it. They, their job is to sell advertising to, to fund the magazine. The, the cover cost of, of a print gun magazine doesn't even cover the production cost of the, 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 the uh, and shipping it out to the retail outlet where they sell it and whatnot. The, the revenue comes from the ads, which is why you'll see a full page color ad for the newest whiz bang pistol and, and happens to be on the page next to the review of the new whiz bang pistol that says it's the best thing since sliced bread. So uh, back in those days, we had to be kind of careful about, about gun magazines. You had to kind of keep that in mind. But uh, all those controversies were ginned up by these editors simply as a way to fill magazine space up. It's the same old crap over and over and over again. They they would have uh, false uh, controversies where some some major gun writer would take one side of the issue and another would take the other side and just you know beat each other to death for three or four issues. And uh, a lot of times neither one of them actually believed what they were doing. They were just cranking out stuff to fill it, fill in the gap between the ads. Now with the internet, it's even worse. Because back in those days, you got filtered at least. You, you, the editor had to like your stuff or the publisher had to like your stuff, see some kind of 
glimmer of intelligence in the writing and uh, that was the only way you got into a magazine but now everybody's got a keyboard everybody's a gun expert so uh, you know the problem with the internet is there's an awful lot of information out there but most of it's wrong <laughs> and just anybody can start a podcast yeah yeah <laughs> there you go oh uh, one thing i was going to ask earlier as uh, <laughs> I don't want to ask it now, even though it's going to be kind of out of sequence to the conversation. Um, as people go through their journey of going through classes and, you know, they've moved into instructing or they're just a student that is um, going in and getting exposed <clears throat> to new techniques. How do they, how do you boil down to, when do I make a change in my technique to this other material that I've learned, you know, from a student or an end user perspective, and then from an instructor, you know, course design technique, when do I stop teaching something I was teaching to make time to teach something else? Yeah, that, that's a difficult question. Uh, both, both aspects of it are somewhat difficult, somewhat complicated. Uh, I guess we'll take it from the student's side first. What I would really encourage a student to do is, is do some due diligence, do some research before you start taking classes. Uh, I'm a strong proponent of training with more than one instructor, more than one school, if the material is from the same basic family of skills, you might say it's, it's the same basic philosophy. In, in other words, don't, don't take a class from somebody who's front sight centered, by, by that I mean, uh, has an emphasis on seeing the sights for every shot, being accountable for every shot, and using the sights to accomplish that. And then go take a class from some guy that's, oh, no, you can't do that under real stress. Just stick it out and shoot. Um, that, that All it does is create conflict in your mind, particularly at the subconscious level. And, and just basically you wasted both classes. Um, there are plenty of competent people who teach doctrine that is similar enough that you're going to continue to get benefit from it. But uh, like I tell uh, new instructors, you need to take people's basic entry-level pistol classes from as many different competent trainers as you can, because one of the things you need to be able to do is explain the same material in more than one way. A lot of times you'll explain something to a new student, and you give it to them three different explanations, and they still give you the little cocktail puppy look. Obviously, don't get it. And then you tell them a fourth way and the light bulb comes on, they suddenly understand what you're saying. Well, it's difficult, especially for a new trainer, to come up with multiple ways to explain the same technique. But if you go to several different trainers, you're going to hear several different explanations of the same technique. So I think both from a, a student standpoint and the instructor standpoint, that's really important. From the student standpoint, you're getting the same information in slightly different manners slightly different presentation of it, slightly different wording of it, slightly different demonstration of it. And that really deepens your depth of understanding of, of that technique or skill um, by seeing it presented in, it's, you know, the example you gave earlier, the guy said, you know, this guy said essentially the same thing, and that guy said essentially the same thing, and that guy said essentially the same thing, and that guy That's reinforcing it into your mind a lot more than just a single trainer or a single school going back training with the same guy over and over and over again you're hearing the same information basically over and over and over again so if you uh, brought that out but stay in that same discipline if you will 
then you're going to get a, a lot more effective learning process. And then, like I said, with the trainer, that gives you an opportunity to find more ways to explain why it is what you do. When a, you know, when, a student, when you tell a student do this or do that, and they look at you and say, why? You should be able to give them a coach an explanation, not because that's what they did in the academy or that's not what the book says or that's what Guru X told me to do. Why? What, what does this do? That, well, if we don't learn to do this, then we could do that. If we could do that, then we could accomplish this. But if you can't explain that to them, there's no reason for them to buy into what you're doing. That's a lot easier if you've heard it explained by several different competent trainers. So, so like I said before, we were talking about the, the synergy at TACOM. I got to work that word in. Um, by having a lot of trainers from a lot of different backgrounds. I mean, hell, we have trainers from Washington State, New York State, Florida, Texas, everything in between, but all saying in a slightly different way, essentially the same thing, that it really beats it into your subconscious, which is where we need it to be for you to retain it, do anything with it in real stress. So I think if you stay in the same basic discipline, same training family, if you will, family line, then I think that's very beneficial to you to go to different trainers and, and hear different ways to see this, fix the same problem, basically. And for trainers, it's absolutely necessary because you, you're not going to come up with all this on your own. But if you hear essentially the same thing explained, go to five different schools, you hear the same thing explained by five different people in five different ways, then your teaching repertoire is much, much more developed. Which all right. Why I still try to go to schools, you know, with, I've been going for years to take Gabe White's uh, class. Uh, and now that I'm, I'll be 70 next year, I didn't have any hope of getting a turbo pin, but I solidly got a light pin out of it. But more importantly, I picked up a, a nugget that I instantly worked into our basic program that I thought was just brilliant. And that made it worth the, the time, effort, money to, to go take that class because I got a nugget that, that I think makes a huge difference in, in what we do. Now, I'm not going to tell people what it is. <laughs> have to go take his class but uh, it was one of those aha moments that that's really worthwhile well i would not have that had i not gone to you know got up off my ass and i'm taking his class I, I had to make an effort to do that same with ernest lane i've known ernest since 1990 you know correct yeah ni- 1996 that's a long time ago and i've been trying for all that time to get in one of his classes but he doesn't teach but a handful of classes a year and typically if I was anywhere near where he lives, he was teaching on my side of the continent and vice versa. And finally, a couple of years ago, I, I just, he was teaching a few hours from my home. And I just said, screw it and cancel the class of mine to go take his. And sure enough, um, he was able to point out a couple of things. And, and this happens to all of us. So errors creep into your technique over time. You, you saw something I was doing I wasn't aware of, fixed it, immediately shot better as a result. So as a trainer, you've got to make the opportunities to go in and broaden your own training horizons, if you will, go see how other people do what you're trying to do. And then so you get better at what you do. And I still do that to this day. You know, you know I've been teaching now for you know, damn near 50 years. Right. But I just what I'm asking you, you, you come across new information. How do you make the value judgment? of whether or not it's worth integrating into what you're teaching in your program and casting something else aside, or I'm going to stick with what I'm doing. Yeah, that's good material, but I'm going to stay with what I've got. Well, if anybody is teaching today, what they taught 10 years ago, they need to stop teaching. Uh, Uh That's 
equipment check. Hell, when I went through my early training at Gunsight, if you showed up with an auto, you had 1911, unless you were the one guy in a thousand that showed up with the Browning High Power. And that was it, period. So a lot of the techniques were 1911-centric. All the, the malfunction clearance techniques were based on malfunctions the 1911s have. The reloading sequences were based on seven, eight-shot magazines. Uh, so the entire doctrine was built around that gun platform. Well, what have we got today? Uh, I didn't think I would live this long, but about three years ago, I taught my first full class in Texas without a single 1911 in it. Uh, I never thought I'd live to see that day, especially in Texas. But I routinely do classes in Texas now with 20 people in class and not a single 1911 in there. None of the stuff that people show up with today existed, not just 40 years ago, it didn't exist 20 years ago. Uh, H&Ks, C320s, M&Ps, None of that stuff was around 20 years ago. So you have to be able to adapt as equipment technique changes. You know, the uh, AIWB carry is not new. Uh, it's been, people have been doing that since they started carrying pistols. Uh, I've got photographs of people on the Western frontier wearing gun that way, uh, not just shoved in their pants, but purpose-built AIWB holster. Uh, I've got one grizzled old uh, lawman from uh, Arizona it's just like about 1930. He's got a single action army and a purpose built appendix IWB rig. Uh, so it's nothing new. It's something that goes around in that cycle we talked about. But uh, the modern holsters that we have for that now are so radically different from the holsters that they had 100 years ago that it's almost like being reinvented. So you got to adapt to that. So equipment changes. Over the last 30 years, We've learned a great deal about how the mind works, both in learning and retaining physical skills and applying those skills under real pressure, under duress. Uh, we found a lot of stuff we thought we knew we, we didn't quite know. Uh, we know a, a lot more about that now. Uh, so we have to modify technique based on what we learn about how people learn physical skills, how they retain them. Uh, so basically, when I see other competent people teaching something. I see their students doing well with it. I run a few students through that way and they do well with it. And then we say, okay, well, we'll start, we'll start teaching that and, and modify the techniques as we go along because things change. The threats change. The bad guys we face on the street today are not the guys that we had 40, 50 years ago. A oh, lot higher percentage now. People that are drunk, drugged, crazy, and all of the above, uh, that, that'll make a lot of difference. Oh, the, the criminal justice system has changed. They don't fear it anymore. 40 years ago, for instance, my prison was a big deal nationally. Okay, no, not, not a big deal. Um, because of advances in modern trauma care, um, most of the really, the, the kind of thugs we really want to worry about have all been shot already. Uh, they weren't impressed. You know, they, they went in. Uh, the Med Memphis treats eight, nine, 10 people a day, every day for gunshot wounds. Uh, they, it's almost an assembly line. You in one door and out the next in a couple of hours. And uh, so everybody on the street knows numerous people that have been shot and got over it very quickly. And uh, an awful lot of them have been shot and got over it very quickly. So pointing guns haven't done impress them like it did 40, 50 years ago. Uh, but when we didn't have modern trauma care, you were a lot more likely to die if somebody shot you. Now they, they realize that you're not likely at all to die unless they shoot you really well or really a lot, one or the other, or both. So that, that's changed the dynamic a little bit. And as I said, the, the equipment has changed radically. We got ammunition now we did not have 30 years ago. Uh, 
numerous gun designs we didn't have 30 years ago, holster designs we didn't have 30 years ago. So if you're still teaching material that you learned 30 years ago, it's all obsolete today. So you have to adapt and uh, change as we go along. You know, in, in 1980, I would have been teaching a hard weaver with a 1911. Uh, we don't do either now. Uh, the only 1911 I still own is a Shanghai Municipal Police Colt made 1927 because ain't nobody getting that one while I'm still alive. <laughs> but uh, that's the only 1911 I still own. I think Lynn's got one or two. But um, the things have changed. Yeah. Talking about how things have changed. It's amazing to me. I've been on a revolver bug here again lately. Mm-hmm. And I, it seems like up until just now, because I'm out looking for revolvers, mm-hmm. um, you know, old police trade-in cop guns where you go into any gun shop and they were all over the place, like usually yeah. sitting in a box in the corner. And, you know, they had a price tag was a couple of hundred bucks and they were happy to go ahead and get it off their hands and get rid of it. Uh, on a local trading site today, there was a guy who had a nice Ruger Security 6 stainless posted. Then he have a turn line on the cylinder. And I sent him a message inquiring about it because he'd added a trade thing, was possibly a Glock or whatever. And I said, well, what kind of Glock are you interested in? And his response was, which two are you going to trade? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. We, we have reached a complete juxtaposition yeah. of oh, absolutely absolutely yeah when i was a, when i was a rookie if, if somebody sees the semi-auto they had to call one of the gun that's like me come show them how to clear it now if one of the kids sees us a revolver you gotta call one of the gun that's gonna show them how to clear it <laughs> yeah. you know, I, uh, I own uh, i own more revolvers than autos i don't care but i own a whole bunch of them uh, i've got some to hunt with i've got some that are strictly uh, historical value, uh, but uh, you know if you if you ride a horse to work every day and do most of your communication by tele uh, by a telegraph, then uh, yeah, carry them over there. Technological contemporaries of that equipment. Yeah, yeah, it's just uh, it just seems so weird to me that 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 whole thing is just flipped on its head. Oh, yeah. That you know, a few years ago. You couldn't give them away, and then now they're commanding a premium. Uh, part, part of it is that uh, revolvers are much like 1911. The, the uh, action of a Smith & Wesson revolver built yesterday is exactly the same as one that was built in 1909, you know, over 100 years ago. Um, it was made, and the same thing applies to 1911. It was made when skilled hand labor was cheap and plentiful, and automation was rare and expensive. Uh, in 1909, you didn't have Social Security. Nobody had retirement plans. You didn't have a pension if you worked for Smith & Wesson or Cole. You sat there at a bench for 30 or 40 or 50 years hand-fitting guns until you flopped over dead one day and then brought in the, the guy that you've been training for the last 20 years moves up to your chair and they bring in a, a new guy. Um, neither the 1911 nor the revolver are well suited to modern manufacturing techniques. Uh, when you pay $3,500 for a Wilson or a Nighthawk 1911, you're paying for that level of hand fitting that a coat would have had in 1928, 1930. My, my 1927 coat, uh, I got a factory letter, it's one that went to the Shanghai Municipal Police and it's got their roll markings on it and everything. But anyway, it's it's fitted to the level of a, of a Nighthawk 
today. It's just a commercial 1911. But the, the, the assumption was we're sending this to the Shanghai Municipal Police in Shanghai, China. Somebody's going to fight for their life for this gun not long after it gets unboxed. It had better work or I'll get fired and I'll never get another job. And so the guns were built with that in mind. A modern revolver is that over 100-year-old action that requires a bit of hand-fitting, hand-fitting, but they don't do it anymore. They just mass produce and send them out. Basically, what you're buying when you buy a new revolver is a box of parts. And she takes somebody knows what they're doing and make a revolver out of it. Same with the typical 1911 or anything under a couple of grand. And uh, so what we're finding is those older guns, the $200 barrel full of model 10s that we, you were talking about, um, are made so much better than the revolvers of today because they still had a fair degree of hand fitting involved with them. Um, the outshell, I'll give you, I'll give you two brand new ones for a, a 1950s vintage Smith or Cult anything because they were made a hell of a lot better. Um, they'll, they'll, they'll work, they'll hold up. But unfortunately, I can't say that about a new one. I mean, I, I know one guy who's had uh, two Smith & Wessons in the last two or three years that have gone back to the factory, uh, both of them crapped out in the first range trip uh, to the point of can't do anything with this guy, go back to the factory. Um, yeah. That that would that would have been unheard of in the 40s, 50s, uh, but unfortunately fairly common today. Yeah, and you know the the third generation Smith and Wesson seem to be developing a cult following all of a sudden. And I sit there and I look at that and I go, I carried one of those things. And while I have nostalgia for the one that I carried, mm-hmm. I don't have nostalgia for any mm-hmm. other one out there. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's amazing. I, I think it comes down to is when something becomes not readily available anymore, mm-hmm. all of a sudden it gets a value attached to it. And in some cases, there's a reason why they went out of yeah. frontline usage and are not available anymore. But I think the, the driving factor on the cost on those revolvers is simply that they they work from that era. Uh, they're just a much better gun than you can buy today over the counter. You know, same thing applies to many other, you know, applies to Remington 870s. And, you know, give me a give me an old Wingmaster, I'll give you two brand new ones uh, for, for an old Wingmaster any day. And uh, I think that's driven the price of revolvers up a lot. That and then they just, uh, they don't make nearly as many of them as people think. Uh, yeah. You know, Smith & Wesson sells more J-frames than anything else, but in the other revolvers, they really don't make that many of them you know, in a given year. And that, that drives the price up, but they're not going to make any of the old ones. You know. Right. So, this is why real estate keeps going up. They don't make any more dirt. Same way with old Smith & Wesson revolvers. They're not going to make any more of them. You couldn't really, you couldn't put the amount of hand fitting that went into one in the 40s or 50s into one today and sell it at a price point that anybody would be willing to pay for it. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a reason why the performance center guns cost more because somebody actually went through them and did the fitting that would have been done on a straight production gun 50 years ago. All right. Well, now I'm going to throw you a complete oddball question. All right. Yeah. On this show, we focus in on a lot of the historical context and we've really been on a modern technique theme over uh, a bunch of recent, recent episodes and a lot of people know the names like Cooper and, and, and those like who out there was ex- very important or very influential that just nobody knows about now. Oh, well, 
course, the first one that comes to my mind would be Walt Comstock. Uh, who? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Walt was a competitor in the uh, Southwest Pistol League, which was the uh, uh, originally the Southwest Combat Pistol League. But when they incorporated the state of California, didn't like the word combat, so they dropped it, made it Southwest Pistol League, and that eventually grew into what became IPSC. Walt was an early competitor in that, and the basically came up with the uh, hit factor scoring that everybody uses today in USPSA. They call it hit factor. Now nobody knows Comstock's name. There's originally it's called Comstock count. And uh, the idea was to, uh, I think the, probably the most succinct explanation of it I've heard lately is see who can get the most points per second. But basically if you shoot slowly to, to get all your points, your score won't be very good. If you shoot really, really quickly, but drop a whole lot of points, your score won't be very good. But if you shoot quickly and get your hits, then your score will be much better. So it, it's probably the most um, relevant way to, to measure defensive pistol skills. The guy who gets his hits faster wins, just like in a fight. You know, gets the first anatomically valuable hit, not just to hit someone on dude, but in that area from collarbone to diaphragm, inside the nipples. So if a guy can get a hit in that area in half the time, this guy can get hit in that area. The first guy's a better shot, and Comstock Count rewards that. Hit factor scoring is very widely used now, but it, it, that was one of Comstock's major contributions, and, and most people don't really, you know, not enough familiar with the name at all. Um, Mike Harry's was an early instructor at Gunsight, a Korean War combat veteran. Uh, early instructor at Gunsight, uh, one of the first to look at alternative techniques, work with a flashlight and a pistol, mostly from a law enforcement context. But uh, one of the first people to actually look at that from a uh, informed perspective, not just not just accept the old FBI technique because it's the only one anybody taught. I came up with some innovations in that. Uh, so he he probably doesn't get enough credit. Uh, Chuck Taylor was. Uh, a very prolific writer. And uh, early on, he was uh, number two he got at Gunsight for several years. And he had a whole lot of other experience beyond that. But he also wrote an awful lot for a number of different publications. So he was instrumental in getting the word out on a lot of stuff to, to the mainstream uh, via those old print gun magazines that we talked about. Uh, worked for several of them over the years. Uh, don't agree with everything Chuck said. Don't believe a lot of what Chuck said, but a lot of what Chuck wrote was was important and, and was instrumental in getting it out to the masses. Uh, you, and people they just have no idea. Now, prior to the internet, uh, information was a lot harder to come by, and relevant or uh, useful information was really hard to come by. So there were a handful of writers that you could count on to give you some stuff that you could actually maybe take and adapt to your own needs. And, and Chuck was one of them. So he, he didn't get as much credit as he probably should. He just he just passed away a couple of years ago. Um, that, those, those are some early early pioneers. Um, you know, of course, everybody everybody's aware of Dennis Tudor's work. Uh, Dennis absolutely just hates what it's been morphed into over the years. He never intended it to be a twenty-one foot rule or anything like he. You know, Dennis is a Mormon, doesn't curse, but when he hears the words 21 foot rule, he just turns beet red and, and just gets mad. And, uh, he, he's about to pop a cork sometimes when he, when he hears that. 
term, but he was one of the first people to disseminate information about the fact that somebody with a contact weapon was a threat from further away than arm length, which a very common misconception that if he's got a tire iron or a knife or a machete, he's got to be close enough to touch you with it. No, he doesn't. He's got to be close enough to get to you before you can do anything about it. And that's a lot further away than a lot of people realize. And it's not a 21-foot rule. That just happened to be where until uh, 20 years ago, uh, almost no pistol range in the country had anything but 7, 15, 25, and 50-yard lines. They didn't have threes and fives. We just added those in the last 20 years for the most part. And so the seven-yard line happened to be a convenient place for him to stand and do his initial research with, with his volunteers. He didn't intend that to be any kind of benchmark. Um, if I got a guy with a knife eight or 10 feet away from me, threatening to cut me, I'm not necessarily going to shoot him because he's 85 years old in a wheelchair and I can outrun it. So I wouldn't shoot him, even though he's way under that 21-foot mark. On the other hand, I got some guy in his early 20s, he's 6'4", and got on running shoes and right on the open parking lot with nothing between the two of us. He's 30 feet away waving a knife. He, he might get shot because how long would it take him to get over here with that knife? Less than a couple of seconds. So there's, there is no 21-foot rule or any other distances. Given the dynamics of the current situation, what obstacles are between me and this guy? Can I put a chain link fence? Can I put a sales counter? Can I put a parked car between me and him? The distance and time are inseparable. If I buy some distance, I buy some time. Oh. What are his apparent physical abilities? Is it the 85-year-old guy in a wheelchair or is it a late teenager with running shoes on? So there, there's no magic number. But Dennis's early work opened the door for that, uh, in, especially in the legal sense, and, and really, uh, really made some changes in doctrine. And uh, he should get a lot of credit for that. And uh, I'm sure there are a bunch of other people. That, <laughs> most of us... Uh, that teach are not teaching our own stuff. We're teaching the piece I got from this guy, a piece I got from that guy, a piece I got from that guy, a piece I got from that way, and put it into a program. Uh, all we really have to claim as our own is, is the way we string it together into a into a uh, product, if you will, that we then give to other people. Um, very few people teach you today invented anything. They just learned about the thing, you know, so Cecil Birch posted something on the internet today about reading The Life of Men Went to War by Herbert McBride, uh, rereading it for uh, how many of the time. Uh, that was written in the years between World War I and World War II. Absolutely still valuable information in it today. Uh, so somebody that's uh, teaching some of the stuff that's covered in their book, they, they didn't invent that stuff. McBride was doing it in 1920. And so... That's one reason I think trainers really ought to make more of an effort to, to learn more about the history and development of the craft because a lot of times you make the assumption that something's new that no, it's not new. It's third time around for it. And this is the way we used to do it and that morphed into this because then we got this equipment, we were able to do that. And if you don't understand the, the development of the technique, <clears throat> it's easy to think that you or your guru devised it when in fact all we're doing is rediscovering it and uh, repackaging, repackaging it in many cases, including me. All right. Is there anyone especially you would like to pay homage to as a mentor of yours? Well, it, it would have to be Cooper. Oh, he was, as I said before, <clears throat> this is in the days before electronic uh, communication. I, I had a, a file folder 
you know, two inches thick of letters from him from the late 60s and 70s where he, he was patient and uh, said, well, this, this kid in the southeast where there is no training available whatsoever is asking the right questions, so I'll take the time to give him the right answers. Uh, when I went to my various trips to gunsight, to be honest, Jeff didn't teach me how to shoot at that point, uh, but he taught me how to teach. And, uh, forever indebted for that. Uh, taught a lot about how to think and uh, a great deal about how to teach. So if I had to have, uh, if I had to name one mentor, it would be Jeff. All right. A lot of other people have had a lot of influence, but he probably had the, the deepest. There you go. Uh, where can people find you on the internet, classes for next year, et cetera? Uh, <clears throat> Rangemaster.com, real complicated. Just uh, rangemaster.com. Uh, there's a pull down menu at the top there. It's got, got the class schedule on it. I've got uh, 33 classes uh, over, over that part of the country covered by, uh, bear in mind, I'm in South Florida. Uh, no further west than Texas and no further north than Pennsylvania. I've, I've decided to turn 70 next year. I've decided to stop these ridiculous long three and four week on the road trips that I've been doing and uh, spend more time. I've got, got a really nice home here in Florida. I'd like to see it more often. So uh, starting next year, uh, which is a big departure for me, starting next year, no further west than Texas no, or further north than uh, Pennsylvania. I just toted it up today. Uh, this this year, the year we're just finishing up, I taught in 17 cities in 11 states, taught 33 or four classes in 17 different cities in 11 different states. And uh, that's a pretty hectic schedule. So I'm trying to not cut back the number of classes next year, but they're, they're in a more compact area. And there a lot of times it's where I knock out three or four in one two-week trip instead of being uh, gone three days out of five all year like I have been. Yeah, I, I've forgotten what the total number is, but one time I sat down and counted the number of states that I've uh, been to a class or helping you with a class in, and it was double digits. Yeah. It's just, just on that. So, um, well, I, I very much uh, thank you for all your mentorship uh, that you've provided me over the years and looking forward to more. Um, thank you for, for all the guidance that you've given me. And um I'm sure that most of our range master family would sit here and say the same thing. And there's an awful lot of us now. Yeah, um, there are about, uh, about 1,200 range master certified instructors in the U.S., about 50 or 60 in Europe. Um, like I said, uh, between the staff and myself, we've trained over 50,000 students uh, over, over the years, not counting military. We put in a good bit of time in the military after 9-11, but uh, not counting them. <clears throat> and uh, as I said a minute ago, I, I hit 70 next year. So my, my main focus now, uh, all but maybe three or four of the classes I'm doing next year are instructor level, one level or other, either pistol instructor, advanced instructor, master instructor, or shotgun instructor development. And uh, what I'm really trying to do is train up the, the next generation, get them ready to take over. A lot of us old guys are about to age out of the system. You know, Hackathorn has retired. Uh, Clint Smith's like 75 now, Farnham's 76. Uh, I think Mass is 75. Uh, I'm hitting 70 this year. So a lot of us are going to be around that much longer. So trying to make sure the next group of trainers are 
able to pick up where we leave off and keep things going. Well, there you go. Any parting shots of wisdom you would like to, to dig in? Well, just, just uh, remind, remind yourself periodically that uh, the stuff we do is one of the very few arenas that uh, our typical students are ever going to be involved in. It's literally life and death. So it, uh, I know it's a strain, but you have to make the time to train. You have to make the time to practice. Uh, one day you'll be glad you did. There you go. Well, thank you for coming on tonight. And uh, <laughs> we had to wait six weeks for you to get back home <laughs> to yeah. do this extra yeah. episode. Well, yeah. I had a class in uh, Dallas and one in uh, Casa Grande, Arizona. So we decided, well, hell, we'll just make a little Western vacation out of it. So we, we went, uh, Lynn went with me, went to Dallas and taught and then drove out to Arizona from there. And then on the way back, stopped off in New Mexico and screwed around for a while there in the, uh, in the mountains and made a well, kind of a mini vacation out of it, which might say went down to Tombstone and played tourist and, and all that and came back, but uh, tried to limit those three week uh, on the road trips for next year. People are just going to have to try a little harder to come see me. All right. Well, to the audience, uh, once again, the numbers have continued to grow. This is, we're recording this on Wednesday night and we've already broken the record for uh, uh, the previous 30 day average uh, based on the last episodes. And we've already broken, broken the record that normally takes a week for us to get those numbers in. And we're 10 ahead of where we were last week already uh, as far as audience numbers go. So that's, that's just the podcast numbers, the YouTube version of the, the spotting episodes already had over 200 as well. So, you know, thank you audience that, that uh, you're continuing to participate and continuing to play along, but most importantly, I thank you for your time. <laughs>